on the record on news talk Good afternoon, you are listening to On The Record, Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. Now I am delighted to say I'm joined in studio by, I was going to introduce you as a fellow former junior <laughs> hurler, although Fergal, I'm a current junior hurler, yeah, I think. They're so yeah. stuck for numbers at the moment that yeah, uh, you're still talking y- off. you might even get a phone call. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah, I doubt it. Uh, Fergal Purcell, who is now the Director of Public Affairs at Edelman, Ireland, a former Government Press Secretary is how a lot of you listening will know him, and former soldier as well. And actually, while we'll get on to those other aspects in a moment... I want to start with the former soldier part of your career. We're in the third wave of Fergal Purcell, are we? Yeah. <laughs> wave one, uh, 18 years in the army. The 60th anniversary of the Defence Force mm. is taking part in global peacekeeping missions is this week and there's a, there's a number of events to market. Mm. Uh, why I want to start with this is I was amazed actually doing a bit of research on it. Irish neutrality is something that's talked about quite a bit at the moment in the context of PESCO uh, and uh, common <laughs> European defence policy and all that. And I assumed, naively assumed, the same conversations were being had in 55 when we joined the UN and in 58 when we went on this first peacekeeping mission to the Lebanon. But it turns out they weren't. I went through the Irish Times archive. Irish neutrality as a phrase was mentioned twice in 1958. It was never mentioned in 1955. It's been mentioned nearly 20 times just this year alone in the same Irish Times archive. It it was a completely different conversation or the conversation wasn't being had. Which is fascinating. Which is fascinating. And and, you know, given the the significance of the anniversary that's in it and given the fact that Ireland is the only country in the world with unbroken United Nations service which is something that isn't glossed on me and isn't glossed in people in the United Nations and gives us a disproportionate amount of clout at that level. Now, neutrality, uh, you know, has become quite a vexed issue, you know, from Plains and Shannon to, you know, being a symbol of of kind of an abuse of that in some people's eyes. I mean, I have a much more uh, pragmatic, I suppose, and realistic view. But, I mean, the point you make is really well made, actually. I didn't know that, that it wasn't mentioned that often back then. You know, especially post-World War, when our non-involvement, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rather than our neutrality, our, 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 you know, we call it the emergency, you know, so our detachment and then that famous de Valera response to Churchill on the radio when Churchill had called us out in his own mind and de Valera probably gave his best ever um, kind of speech in, in that sense, kind of, you know, defining who we were. But, you know, the idea that neutrality kind of wasn't central to the discussion then is is... God, anyone who can answer that question with uh, you know, huge clarity will get my vote, but it could be for some of these reasons. When you're peacekeeping from the start, it is seen as, seen as automatically neutral. It is mm. by definition neutral. And you are by de- definition separating warring parties or policing a, a non-militarised zone post-conflict. Um, but, you know, you're also right to say where we've come now. And, you know, the politicisation of the military decision-making process globally, the coalescing of, you know, like the, the, the American president is called commander-in-chief. I mean, that kind of militarization of that role, if you like, you know, and Bush walking onto the aircraft carriers with the bomber jacket on him and, you know, like that was kind of new. But what it did and what it served a purpose, or the purpose it served was to narrow the gap between politics and military decision-making, which is now almost indiscernible if you look at the Joint Chiefs of Staff situation in America. But here, equally, you know, what has happened is that particular attitude has kind of seeped out. And there's a lot of fear around our involvement amongst some in overseas service, but something I'm very proud to have been involved in. Uh, The Defence Forces 
is are arguably the single most important tool of Irish foreign policy. It affects everything. And when European common defence policy was being arrived at, you know, it, it makes utter sense to me. You know, the rapid reaction force, which may not be known to uh, some listeners, and I'm sure is known mm. inherently to a lot of listeners, essentially a force created in Europe to react to humanitarian crisis at short notice. And we've been partnering with the likes of the Finns and uh, mostly Nordic countries, actually, since the inception of that. So like, it's a huge value to the government, yeah. you know. And sometimes I, I wonder, I mean, the army are brilliant at swinging their arms up, you know. The army never threaten to go on strike or the army don't, you know, they get wheeled out for the, the big, you know, ceremonial moments. And I remember the Queen and Obama and all that. Yeah. And I remember they were the highlight, you know, and certain army officers were, were kind of news because they were appearing at the heads of Guards of Honour. And then, you know, like the obedient soldiers that they should be, actually. Mm. You know, I, I mean, you swear an oath on the Constitution as an officer. Um, you know, they, they recede into the background and, and obey the political masters. And that is as it should be. But I wonder sometimes, are we are they taken for granted? I think they are sometimes. It's a pity. Yeah, they strike me a little bit. I remember I was in Uganda about six years ago and we met President Museveni, the president mm. of Uganda. And he, like a lot of people, mentioned Irish missionaries. And it's who the, it was in lots of parts of sub-Saharan Africa, particularly, that's their relationship with Ireland, mm. is, is, is Irish missionaries, mm. who, in a, who in a way, I suppose, fulfilled that, almost that diplomatic role mm. for Ireland overseas for a long time. Ireland's relations, the reason that Irish aid operates in the countries it does today, in a lot of cases, is because of the missionary involvement previously. Mm. The Taoiseach has announced an expansion of the diplomatic corps. Yeah, doubling the footprint, yeah. Uh, expansion yeah. of it. Is that to be welcomed? Should, uh, yeah. Do we need a bigger... No, we do. I mean, there's very practical reasons for that. I mean, like soft power is very, very effective. And I saw it firsthand when I had the, the opportunity to, to, to move around with Enda in particular for about six years, when you could see the effect of the relationships on the ground with senior diplomats... I mean, it's at the harder end of soft power mm. for sure. But, you know, when there's a lunch had in the London embassy and there's, you know, uh, very influential people in, in the financial sector and it's all behind closed doors and and you're, you know, you're trying to leverage your your power. We don't have oil off our coast, uh, at least none, none that anyone's found yet. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but our, what the point I'm making is we have to make use of our agility, our nimbleness, our personality. And the country has a personality and it's expressed through our diplomatic corps. Was Enda good at that in those ah, yeah, ah, situations? Yeah. I mean, it was gassed the way he went down in America, a bomb, in a way he didn't go down here in this, to the same extent. It was unbelievable. I mean, it, it, I remember... Just always or that famous last visit? Always. It was always the case. It was, if for someone like me working for him, it was deeply frustrating because um, the warmth felt to- towards him. It was like they got him in a way, in a, in a country of hundreds of millions of people, in a way that they didn't get him here. You know, like, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as say a prophet is never recognised in his own land or in that nonsense. But Enda's patois worked in America. And, like, I, I distinctly remember, you know, conversations. I mean, think back. I mean, I, I did a, an address at the invitation of the, the Institute of Public Administration over in Lansdowne Road there, and, mm. and it was on crisis management and reputation management. We were in penury when we were going to America first, in particular. And we went there a lot, east and west coast with Enda. And he would lean across tables and basically tell senior investors that they weren't withdrawing their investment in Ireland. And he wasn't leaving the room until they agreed to that. 
and that kind of they kind of responded to that kind of uh, approach and he knew the language in which they spoke so he was brilliant at that he, and he was also brilliant at it privately here Magdalene Laundries you know the, I mean what was the first most significant speech Enda gave when Ireland was at its economic nadir it was Klein yeah the Gimlet Eye yeah the canon lawyer yes it was, it was Klein so what what Enda didn't want the economy to be fixed for the economy's sake. He wanted it to be fixed for Ireland's sake and for its self-esteem. Now, now that you have a bit of distance between, yeah. uh, I suppose, your work with with Enda, with the government, can you appreciate, not maybe appreciate, understand why he didn't get the uh, the credit at the time? Yeah, I, I, I know I can because... The, it's not credit, you see. Enda used to say to me, like, I used to say to him, Jesus, you can't catch a break with some of these people. And it changed, you know, especially towards the end. And his exit was as dignified as a, an exit as a politician's ever had from any administration, anywhere. You know, he managed that himself. But... Probably came a bit quicker than he wanted. Yeah, or you could you could argue that it came, well, it came a lot long after other people wanted. Well, that's yeah, a fair I point mean, too, you know, yeah. I mean, so yeah. yeah, he decided when he went, you know, and I think that's appropriate for for a guy who'd uh, provided the service uh, he had provided, and in the end, it's actually worked out quite well for everybody. Mm. You know, you know, there's a bit of symmetry attached to it, but I mean, I think he. I remember Roisin Ingle and myself worked on a kind of um, a project. Um, like the, the interviews were very fraught. It didn't matter if it was end or not. Like the media were very angry with themselves as well as with everything else. And when somebody's angry with themselves, they project. And what was happening was the media missed the downturn in a big way, right? Everybody missed it, but so did the media, right? Except for Morgan Kelly. And <laughs> the point is that that informed the way they treated the incoming group and the way the media themselves had been treated quite badly, not by the likes of Owen Octor or anything like that, but by the fact that the government, it took Patrick Honan to go on the radio to tell us where we were at. Yeah. You know, so they've, so Enda kind of got caught some of that afterworld, if you like. And, but I do remember Roisin Ingle and myself working on a project and it was a really clever concept from her. She came up with the idea, why don't I harness questions from the great and the good? Now, Normal people as well as prominent people. Yeah. And I remember Sheila Connor asked the question. It was a brilliant question, actually. You know, she was particularly pleased around his attitude to the church at the time. And he was a, kind of a bit of a leader in that space, even though he was probably only catching up on Irish people. But one of the questions, and I can't remember who it came from, was, do you think you get a hard time from the South Dublin set? You know, that they don't really rate you as a West of Ireland man. And, you know, how does that make you feel? And he dismissed it. But I saw a flicker in his eye for a split second that said, absolutely. <laughs> now, he would never admit it to me yeah. and never did. He always said, if you go looking for credit, you're on a short rope. And that's why he survived, I think. It's because he never went around looking for slaps on the back. He was made European of the Year last year. I think his legacy is safe. Yeah, has he? Because he, he is, the, the way he's talked about, and maybe this is true of anyone I suppose after they leave public office to a degree, and not not there's there's exceptions to that rule, but particularly where they leave in their own terms, as you said he did, he's talked about it much more glowing terms now than he was when he was. Yeah, and so yeah, like when when end is mentioned most yeah. of the time now, it's in the context of Brexit, and it's in the uh, and the phrase you hear is didn't end to play a blinder to actually get this on the table. Well, not only get it on the table, he he made the border and the hard border one of the um, principles of the agreement, and it has become. I mean, the backstop is now 
legally signed up to and he made it central. And I remember people laughed about that at the start. I remember when he was invoking kind of an all of Ireland, all Ireland, you know, kind of narrative ahead of Brexit. People are going, what is he talking about? But he was looking towards the future. He was Will Enda Kenny be a significant chapter in the book of how Ireland became united in 50 years time? Uh, I'm glad you picked the date and not me. <laughs> I noticed the current Taoiseach uh, was being asked about that and timelines and and that sort of thing when he was in Spain. But you know what? I mean, the Fine Gael Party was actually called the United Ireland Party, the Fine Gael United Ireland Party in its original inception. I mean, the concept of being a Republican in this country has changed dramatically. And one of the, actually, and I, I'm just going to say this, I haven't said this before. <laughs> one of the things I used to get really uh, annoyed about in government buildings was where the flag was. And it never looked right to me. It's on top. It was just on top of the building. Invisible, you'd have to look right up yeah. and tiny. You know, not what it should be. It's now on a very prominent flagpole with the plaque at its foot around 1916 and it billows beside the fountain. We took back the flag during the commemorations period and Enda was the one whose idea it was to make sure that the flag... To go back from provos who had hijacked it? Is that well, the I, I think we took a, Well, no, it's a statement of fact. Yeah. No, no, it's not an insinuation. It's, it's explicit. The flag got sullied. Now, the very definition of Republican in Ireland. I mean, Republican means things internationally. In France, it means something. In, in America, it means something. But in Ireland, it meant something else. Yeah. Now it's back to meaning what it should mean. So there are, there are Republicans in Fine Gael, there are Republicans in Fianna Fáil, and there are Republicans in Sinn Féin and across the independent ranks. And that's the way it should be. And what, I mean, this island of ours, you know, whatever happens in due course will happen in due course, and it needs to be mutually respectful, and we need to proceed I think, carefully and in full respect of all the stakeholders and whatever distance away that is. But the thing I'm really happy about is the fact that there is a republicanism that is safe now in this country and that isn't allied to, uh, you know, a very, very dark and distinctly sad chapter in our country's history. Uh, with an administration in the north that isn't currently sitting and a peace agreement that it's probably at its most vulnerable than it has been since its inception. When you mentioned Republicans in various parts of the country, I was struck. I don't think there's many Republicans left in Cork the way they were fawning and tugging the <laughs> forelock to Charles and Diana during the week. They're all monarchists. Well, um, yeah. uh, the current Taoiseach. Yeah. How much of a headache was he as a minister? <laughs> Ah, yeah, How often did, were you listening to the radio or reading the paper or get a phone call or a text mm. to say, did you hear what Leo just said? <laughs> uh, uh, um, that often? No, no, yeah, 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 that often, yeah. No, no, I mean, I've answered this question before. A, a journalistic colleague of yours from a different organisation asked me in a, in a podcast about this and I'll give the same answer if I could. He was a hard dog to keep at the porch. Like, I mean... I remember myself and Joanne Lorigan, who was a fantastic colleague for years, you know, we, we, we really saw the world the same way. And jo- uh, Joanne is now with Simon Harris and uh, you can see the effect of her work. I mean, she's very insight- intuitive and, and, and very insightful. And, we, you know, she'd be kind of coming in going, um, he's after, you know, walking <laughs> clean off the reservation again. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we used to always kind of look at each other and bemoan it for a few minutes and then come to the same conclusion. He's right. He was always right. It was not always, but he was mostly right. Now, it was very often what he said was quite popular and uh, that would coincide with being right. <laughs> and that's, that's a sign of a brilliant politician. Um, but, like, I mean, I got to work for him directly. I always admired him. The penny dropped with me and Leo years ago. 
Like I copped, every, I copped along with everybody else how, ta- how capable he is. He's a politician since he was 19 years of age. You know what I mean? He's, people talk about his youth. He's in this game a long time now. Mm. That's one thing. But a second penny dropped with me when he, when he came in or when I worked for him directly as Taoiseach. Uh, when he said to a room full of civil servants, the, the entire department, you know more about your job today than I know about mine today. Have you noticed now that you're watching from outside a change in him in how he... No. How, does he still throw his hat over no, the fence? I, no, I mean, he needs to do that. I and mean, that's his... Like, he's a brilliant communicator. And his, his... Why he's so good... I mean, Ender was the person we needed then. I think Leo is the person we need now for the time we're in. Because Ireland's on an arc of liberalisation. That is just phenomenal. And I remember talking to Leo about this a couple of years ago in the corridors and government building. You know... Whatever politician ascertains most accurately where we are on that arc will have most to gain. The person who gets it wrong will lose badly. And the, the outcome of the eighth referendum is an example. Leo Varadkar isn't perfect. And you know what? We need to stop expecting perfection from our politicians. And that includes in buildings like this, around media and around other stakeholders. I mean, we hold them to a high bar for sure, but they are human. And I think we forget that. And politicians are who we are. They're a reflection of the society we're in. And I have massive time for him. He's doing really well, I think. It hasn't been a perfect year, but it's been not far off it. And Brexit has been handled very, very well. And I think a number of issues have been handled very well. I think when he was talking about, you know, the, the prospect of an election, I, uh, I heard r- reporting around this, you know, the election is near. It is not. I mean, if there's an election now, you know, I'd be very, very, very surprised. I just don't see the circumstances. But the way Leo answered that question in Madrid was like the Leo that answers questions as if he was a, a, a minister or, or even an opposition. Ah, you know, they don't want to embarrass Fianna Fáil. Yeah. That's classic. That's classic political positioning himself. You know, he, like, he's really good at it. Like. Yeah. He's really good. And applied intelligence is better than intelligence any day of the week. The tyranny of perfection. Rick Santorum used that phrase yeah. in a podcast on CNN. Progress, uh, CNN perfection. Podcast. But uh, that's what he was, he was talking about, the tyranny of perfection yeah. in politics, that we demand any kind of deviation from party line and he, from purity that he, you yeah. suddenly you're kind of out of favour. And people don't want that anymore. They want authenticity. Well, as soon as Leo became Taoiseach, actually a year ago, mm. the, just last week, um, it became obvious almost immediately what the line of attack, the personal line of attack on him was mm. going to be that all spin and no substance. Mm. And I suppose that came to its zenith really after the Project Ireland 2040 and the Strategic Communications Unit mm. and all of that. And I, I don't ask you, was that fair that, you know, is he all spin? I know you're not going to tell, you're not going to tell me, oh yeah, he is all spin. But was, is that a f- not a fair line of attack? Is that an obvious line of attack? If you were in another party, would yeah. you be saying, look, this is where you go with Leo. You, like, you attack him for being all okay, spin. I, 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 I'll tell you, look at this now, right? I'm fascinated with what happened there. Being strategic about your communications is something the media is always telling you to do. And as soon as you do it, they see you moving into their space and they try to hound you out of it, okay? That's what happened. The numbers for the party went up directly after the establishment of the SCU and they weren't affected by the disestablishment of the SCU. Leo knows what he's doing the government will continue to take a strategic approach to communications. Managing on from crisis to crisis means you're on a short rope. I thought it was a cardinal and continues to be a strategic cardinal error, in particular on behalf of Fianna Fáil, but also on behalf of Sinn Féin, to attack Leo as a spinmeister. It's a mistake. It's not affecting the numbers. Fianna Fáil have backed off it a little bit. Mm. It's not affecting the numbers. 
Because it's not true. If it's not true, it can't be effective. Because if he was some sort of, you know, faux, shallow, intellectually shallow chancer going on the airwaves not known as numbers, you could level it then. But there's clearly intellectual depth there. And if that exists, you know, like I used to say, I used to say all the time in there, especially around the SU when I was still there, competent communications is a virtue. You know, he wears it as a badge of honour. You know, am I representing myself to the best possible degree? Yes. The first line in spin is written by newspapers, not by the people who make the launch. I mean, everyone's interpreting from the moment something happens. Mm. That's what spin is. It's an interpretation of the facts as they are. And he, he will say, if you want to look what his ethos is, there's no, it's like Brian Cody and the Kilkenny team. I remember, I remember Eddie Brennan been asking the Sunday game on it, what's the secret, what's the secret? Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Brennan looking, <laughs> looking at them kind of going, hang on a second, the secret is hard work and keeping lads hungry. The secret with Leo is that he insists on telling you the full story. He insists on telling you all the facts, not just the facts that you want to pick on. That's what the trick is. The trick is because he knows that if it's motivated by virtue, then the truth will out and you have a chance and let whatever happens, happens after that. That's what good communications is, managing the truth. How much like of your time in office would you have said you were responsible for, say you used the phrase a minute ago, competent communications, and how much of it is just putting out fires? Oh, it was ridiculous. It, at the start it was ridiculous. It was, it was non-strategic. The, the country was moving in a strategic direction, but the communications is about putting out fires. And it was very, very difficult and fraught with an angry media. And that's why I always wanted to move on to a, a kind of a, a deliberate strategic footing. And we got there. About halfway through the administration, I think we got there in the end. What, was, there certain, was there something that happened that helped you? Yeah, the economy or? started recovering. And the temperature went down. And the spleen kind of left the conversations. I mean, we weren't cutting disability allowance, Karen. Yeah. Like, that's these are the kind of things. You know, I mean, allowances to vulnerable people were under threat. You know, water charges had abated as an issue, you know, so th- then there became space for a more fulsome communication. So, and we filled it as best we could. And the upside of direct communication is that major organisations, and I'm seeing it in the private sector now, can control their own narrative in, in a way they couldn't before. And, and the same applies to governments, you know. It's an exciting time. Yeah, well, that's what I want to get on to finally before I let you go is, I suppose, controlling the narrative because this Reuters Institute for the Study yeah. of Journalism had their figures out. This was a, a global study. And they mirrored what your own group, Edelman's trust trust, uh, Media Trust Barometer back in about February. That's right, yeah. The, showed, yeah. which was a, a drop in trust for the social media platforms, right. if we call them, as, as sources of news and an increase in trust for what, traditional media? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sources. I, well, I remember uh, Thompson, he was the head of the paper newspaper group in Murdoch's organisation, met the Taoiseach privately a few years ago. And I remember asking him a question at the end of the meeting going, what is the effect of the proliferation of platforms going to be on the quality, on, on news? Mm. You know, and he said, and he thought about it, I mean, it wasn't even near then where it is now. Yeah. He said uh, quality will be at a heightened premium. And if you look at the, that Reuters one, and we found it as well, is that subscriptions to news sites have gone up. Like the New York Times is a, is a subscriptions success. The Financial Times is a subscription success, and so is the Mail. So you can still tell the news, uh, you know, about where it's at. But I think the return to trust in traditional media 
isn't really about newspapers, television and radio, even though I saw uh, listenership of radio in Ireland is off the charts. Mm. Like it's off, it's highest in Europe and yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. But it's, it's more about trust. It's more about what, can, what they can trust and people, you know, they fall into echo chambers online. They all talk to, you know, affirming each other, you know, kind of by this kind of corners of bias in the internet. But at the end of the day, you know, they'll go to the traditional outlets during a crisis, whether that be a weather event, whether that be uh, an economic collapse or whatever. That's where they'll go. So these findings, not one bit of a surprise to me, not one bit. Uh, before I let you go, you've already said there's not going to be an immediate election. When is it going to be? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I was talking to someone who really knows their onions and they said at least this time next year. Really? Yeah. At least this I time next year. A few people will lose a bit of money in the bookies on that, I'd say. It's already gone. I, I know people who've lost money already. But you know what? Whenever it'll be, it'll be some fun. Yeah, well, they always are. Yeah, people can be sure. cynical, they're always a bit of fun. Exactly. Uh, Fergal Purcell, former soldier, as I said, former government press secretary, now director of public affairs at Edmund Ireland. Fergal, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you, Karen. Stay with us here and on the record. We're going to be back chatting to the lads from off the ball after this short break. On the record. On, the record. on News Talk 